Syed Keshua is an Israeli-Palestinian novelist who grew up as a young Arab boy in Israel and determined at a young age to take on a Jewish identity. There's a film that was made telling the story of his childhood called A Borrowed Identity. It's a story of friendship and love and life and humanity. And the film offers a message of hope that if only human beings could just get closer to one another, if we could walk in each other's shoes and see the world through one another's eyes, we could overcome all the divisions that continue to just inflict pain on the world. It's a message we love to hear that through a shared common sense of our own humanity, we can bring about peace on earth, if only it were true. Shortly before this film was to debut at an Israeli, uh, Israeli film festival, three Israeli teenagers were kidnapped by Palestinians. Their bodies were found amid a rubble of rocks. And the outcry for revenge was fierce. On the very day after these Israeli boys were buried, a young Palestinian was kidnapped. He was brutally tortured and murdered. And in the wake of all this, Syed Keshua left Israel for good. And later on, he wrote these words. The lie I told my children about a future in which Arabs and Jews share the country equally was over. That was seven years ago. And the events of the last couple of months have demonstrated that this conflict, which has spanned millennia, has not really abated. And it's not just Palestinians and Israel, Israelis who find peace on earth elusive. At present, there are over 40 ongoing wars and conflicts among the nations of the world. Tribal wars in Africa, terrorist uprisings in Afghanistan and in the Middle East, and then there's the genocide of Uyghur Muslims by their own Chinese government. Here in our own nation, we have a humanitarian crisis at our southern border in which people are exposing themselves to grave danger in the desperate pursuit of false hopes that have been promised by people who are exploiting them for their own profit. Cyber wars are taking place in which rogue governments can launch ransomware attacks against companies demanding huge sums of payment in Bitcoin. And then even in communities like ours, where we're mercifully not living in a war zone, we all know what it's like to have fights and quarrels rising up in our own hearts. We know what it's like to have selfish desires battling within us, rupturing the relationships in our own lives. How do we solve this problem of man's inhumanity to man? Does anyone have power to bring peace on earth? That's the wonderful hope, the good news of the passage that we've heard read this morning from Ephesians chapter 2. This is a passage about the power of Jesus Christ to bring peace on earth. But it's also about 
the passion our Lord Jesus Christ has to demonstrate that peace on earth through us, his blood-bought people, his church. This is the main point of this morning's message. Only King Jesus can bring peace on earth, and he's passionate about showing his power to do that through his church. So please keep your Bibles open to the passage Dan read to us this morning, and let me remind you of the context. Remember what Paul was praying for back at the end of Ephesians chapter 1. What was the main thing Paul was asking for? It was for power, that believers would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened to know the power of God that's at work within us, the power that raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him at God's right hand. And then what was Paul doing in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10? He was showing us how the power of God for salvation has mercifully intervened in our lives as individuals. We were dead in our sins, but God made us alive. We were held captive by the world, the flesh, and the devil, but God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in his position of power and authority over all our enemies. We were under the wrath of God and deserved that wrath for all eternity, but God instead decided to lavish and shower on us his mercy and kindness for all eternity. It's by grace that we've been saved. Everything we needed to do to be right with God, God has done for us as a gift. And now that we have been saved, we're his workmanship. We are his creative masterpiece. We are his epic poem. And everything that we need to do as believers to be pleasing to God is God's creation in us. And so we've got nothing to boast of. Nothing that sets ourselves apart as superior. Everything we have is God's grace gift. So that's the gospel that we've heard so far. But this gospel is not only about how God saves individuals. This gospel is also about how God is saving a people for himself. The gospel is not just about God and me. The gospel is about God and me and you. It's about us, the new community that God is forming. Paul calls it a new humanity in this passage. And we've already seen that hinted in chapter 1, verse 10, if you would just peek back at that in your Bibles, where we saw that God is working out a plan for the right time. And what is this plan that God is working out? It's a plan to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth. And we need to remember this as we're reading Ephesians, that God is working out this this great cosmic plan for the universe, that everything's going to be summed up in Christ, that when everything's brought under the gracious, sweet, righteous reign of King Jesus, there's going to be oneness, there's going to be unity. And aren't you glad that that's what the gospel includes? It's not just about me and my salvation. It's about God's cosmic plan to unite all things in Christ. And he's doing that right now through the church. I was reminded this week that the cross of the Lord Jesus has two beams. One of them is vertical. The other is horizontal. So the cross of the Lord Jesus, it's about God reconciling sinners to himself. That's the vertical beam. But it's also about God reconciling sinners to one another. That's the horizontal beam. And you can't get to that reconciliation, that oneness, that unity, without going through the cross. Here's what God's 
passionate plan as he wants us, his church, to be a compelling picture to a watching world of the power of King Jesus to bring together people who would otherwise be at each other's throats and to fill us with love for one another, to let us walk in unity together, living harmoniously under the reign of the Prince of Peace. That's God's plan. So how do we, how do we get in sync with that plan of God? How do we become the kind of people who witness to the world that our King Jesus has the power to bring peace on earth. We're going to see two things this morning. Number one, remember your own alienation before Christ's intervention in your life. Remember who you were before Christ intervened. That's Paul's focus in verses 11 through 13. He's speaking to Gentiles in Ephesus. And in a Jewish mindset, there were only two types of people in the world. It was us and them. Either you were a Jew or you were a Gentile. This is the big separation in their mind. And sadly, in Paul's time, there was a lot of hostility in the hearts of Jewish people toward the Gentiles, and that hostility was reciprocal. Historians cite how Jews would write things like this, that the Gentiles exist only as fuel for the fires of hell. There was law in place that said it is unlawful for a Jewish person to help a Gentile woman in labor to give birth because you're only bringing another heathen into the world. If a Jewish young man married a Gentile young woman, his parents would hold a funeral for him. He'd be dead to them. And this hostility was often expressed in verbal abuse. We see it in verse 11, where those Jews who thought of themselves as the circumcision, this was their identity marker, they called the Gentiles the uncircumcision, and the word they actually used was even more vulgar and insulting. And notice that Paul, the great Jew who's been converted to follow Jesus Christ, he downplays this pride in circumcision that the Jews had when he says, this is just something that's done in the flesh by human hands. And what God was really looking for was a transformation of the heart. And then in verse 12, he, he describes this fivefold alienation that characterized the Gentile world before Christ intervened. And one commentary has, commentator has put it like this. They were Christless. They were stateless. They were friendless. They were hopeless, and they were godless. And Paul wants them to remember this, to see their lives in the light of a bigger story, the story of God's merciful intervention. He says to them in verse 12, you were without Christ. Don't just think of Christ as Jesus' last name. This is speaking of the messianic king. You had no hope of a king who's going to come and set all the wrongs of this world right and to, to bring the peace on earth that we so long for, to restore creation. And because you were without Christ, you were excluded from the citizenship of Israel. You were stateless. You were cut off from God's people. And you were also friendless. It says in Psalm 25 that the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. But these people, 
Before Christ intervened, they had no knowledge of a God who is in covenant relationship with a people, a God who says, I will be God to you, and you will be my people, and everything you need from God, I will give, and I will, like we sang this morning, my life is bound up with Christ. They didn't know that, and because of this, they were hopeless without hope. Not necessarily psychologically. I'm sure a lot of them had a really optimistic view of their lives and thought things were going great. But objectively, they had no hope that could transcend their own inevitable death. They had no hope beyond the grave. Whereas in contrast, we who are in Christ have the most precious hope in the world, which is a hope of the world to come. And they were godless without God in this world. I'm sure a lot of the Ephesians would have said, we've got all kinds of gods. We've got the temple to Artemis, the goddess, right here in our own city. But Paul's saying, these so-called gods are nothing at all. If you don't have Christ, you're without God in this world. This five-fold description of alienation is the real-life situation of every one of us apart from Jesus Christ and his intervention in our lives. In fact, in this room this morning, there are people who, if you would see your situation clearly as God sees it, you would realize that this is the most accurate description of your reality at this present moment. You are without Christ. You're cut off from the blessings of God's people. You don't know the friendship of God who covenants with you to be the fulfiller of many great promises. And because of that, you're without hope. And you're without God in this world. It's a grim picture of reality for everyone who's outside of Jesus Christ. But if you will agree with God that, that the way he paints reality is actually true for you, if you will start to realize, this is my life, apart from Jesus, and I have good news for you. It doesn't have to stay this way. God is a God who welcomes aliens to himself. There is a firm border security at the gateway to heaven. You've got to go through Jesus Christ. He's the door in. If you don't go through Jesus Christ, there is no immigration into the kingdom of God. But God offers amnesty. God offers asylum. God offers full citizenship in the kingdom of God for all who will come through Jesus, the door. God's saying the door is open wide. Just come through Jesus. I'm pleading with you this morning. I'm inviting you this morning to put your trust in Jesus Christ. Come to Jesus and you will find welcome into God's family. Come to Jesus and you will learn that this God who you deserve to have against you because of your sin is actually a God who is infinitely and eternally for you because of what Jesus has done. If you will come to God through Jesus, there can be a great reversal in your life and this alienation that's described in, chapter, in verse 12 can turn into reconciliation. And if you'd like to do that this morning, there are people all around this room who would love to point you to Jesus and pray with you. And I'd love to pray with you at the end of this service if you'd like to talk to me further about what it means to trust in Jesus. But here's what happens 
when you put your trust in Jesus. Look at verse 13. I love this. But now, can you hear the echo of verses 1 through 3 here after Paul did this whole depressing recital of humanity's lostness and then it's interrupted in verse 4 with this blast of fresh air. But God, who is rich in mercy, the same thing is happening now here in verses 11 and 12 and 13. There's this tremendous reversal that's going to take place with these words, but now. And we have this beautiful description of the gospel. But now, in Christ Jesus, here's the gospel. You who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Let's just pause there for a minute. This is a new view into the gospel that God wants us to get. I long for us to have a multidimensional view of the gospel. One of the things I've been enjoying lately is holding my little three-month-old granddaughter on my lap at the piano bench. And I can only play with one hand right now because i got to hold on to her tight with the other arm. But the other day, I was able to take her little hand and her tiny little finger and plunk out, Jesus loves me, this I know, on the piano. So with one finger. And as she plays, I can take my hand and I can form some chords and make it sound a little bit prettier. But I'm really looking forward to the day when she can just sit on her own on my lap and I can play with both hands. And we can make some beautiful music together. What I want to encourage you to do is not just plunk out the gospel always with one finger. Don't just think of the gospel as God forgives my sins or God makes guilty sinners righteous. These are beautiful gospel themes, but they're meant to be enriched by all these other beautiful gospel themes that we have in the Bible. God wants you to see there's more richness, more nuance, more depth, more tone, more variety to the gospel message than just one theme alone. And in Ephesians, Paul is emphasizing some themes that we tend not to focus on as much. One of these is right here. The gospel is about God bringing people who were far away close. God's saying, I want you to get close to me. Not just close to him, but as we get close to him, what else happens? We get close to everyone else who's gathered around him. That's what the gospel is about, bringing those who are alienated close to himself and close to one another. And how has God done that? Look at verse 13 again. He didn't do that through some act of diplomacy or through any work of our own, but through the blood of Christ. You see, we have nothing to boast on. And we could be the most upstanding citizens. We could be moral people. Or we could be promiscuous pagans who are criminals. The truth is, all of us needed the blood of God's Son to be shed for us to get close to God. That's how alienated all of us were from God. Our sin, your sin and mine, is far worse than you've ever imagined. What it causes between us and God is a separation so wide, nothing we do can bridge that chasm. That's how badly you needed a Savior. You needed God's Son to die for you on the cross, but his mercy is so great, he was willing to give his own Son. And when we remember how alienated we were from God and from his people before Christ did this, before he intervened, that has the power to remove our hostility toward one another. 
because we've all been forgiven far more than we're ever going to need to forgive. Too often we forget this, and then we become alienated toward one another because we've forgotten our own alienation outside Christ, and then we divide because we set ourselves apart as superior and we become divisive and our pride starts to fuel all these ugly attitudes of disdain and hate. And when that's happening, the world's not going to see the power of our peacemaker. Maybe you've heard the story of the man who was stranded on a desert island. He was there for a whole year. And being a very religious man, he built two churches on that island. And when they came to rescue him, they said to him, why are there two churches? There's only one of you on this island. Well, of course, he answered, you always have to have one church to go to and another church to stay away from. And that's what happens when we become forgetful of how God has welcomed us to himself. We become alienated from one another. So remember, Paul says, remember your former alienation. Is there another Christian who's hurt you deeply? Are you nursing and coddling hostility in your heart toward that other Christian? Get close to the cross of Jesus. Remember what God has done to draw you near to himself, and that will have a magnetic power to bring you closer to one another again, especially when you need to forgive. So that's the first thing we need to do. Remember your former alienation. The second thing is this. Rejoice in our reconciliation through Christ's intervention. And we're going to look at verses 14 through 18. And these are some powerful verses. Some, some theologians say this is the central theme of the whole letter to Ephesians. It's the theological foundation that undergirds everything Paul's saying in this letter. And yet, how many of us memorize these verses in Awana? We can tend to skip over them quickly, and they can be kind of thick, but we need to sink our teeth into these verses. Sometimes we can create a conflict between the gospel of individual salvation and the gospel of social reconciliation. But if we're reading the Bible carefully, we'll see there is no conflict. That the gospel of individual salvation that we read about in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2 flows inexorably into the gospel of social reconciliation that we see in verses 11 through 22. There is no conflict between the two. So we need to rejoice in our reconciliation through Christ. And in order to do that, I want to ask four questions. Who did it? How did he do it? Why did he do such a loving thing? And then, what does this mean for us right here, right now? So who brought us near? Well, look at verse 14. The answer couldn't be more emphatic. For he is our peace. He himself is our peace. He made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. It's Christ Jesus himself whose blood was poured out on the cross 
to draw us close to God and to one another. He is our peacemaker, and through his work on the cross, King Jesus has accomplished what no other king, no other prime minister, no other president in the history of the world has been able to accomplish. He took the two groups of humanity that are most hostile toward one another, and he brought them together and formed a whole new humanity out of them. That's the triumph of our king. That's what he's able to do. And that's who Christians are. We're a new humanity. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, wrote these words in the second century. We who worship God in a new way through Jesus Christ, as the third race, are Christians. He's saying we're a new race that God has created. A race of people who are no longer hostile to one another, who once were We've been reconciled to each other through the blood of our King Jesus that he shed to make us his people. Just think of that. How many kings shed their blood for their people? But our king did. And when he died on that cross, what did he do? It says in verse 14, he tore down the dividing wall of hostility. And there actually was such a wall in Jerusalem at the temple. There were all these different sections outside the temple, and and the priests could get the closest, and then the men, and then the women. And then way outside was the court of the Gentiles. They could not go in and worship with God's people. They could look up toward the temple. But on that wall were these inscriptions that said, anyone who crosses this boundary will have his own self to blame for his ensuing death. You can read those inscriptions in the Istanbul Archaeology Museum. They really were there. That's the dividing wall of hostility physically. And Jesus tore that down, not not literally, but spiritually. He, He removed that hostility that raged between the Gentiles and the Jews. And how did he do it? He did it by facing God's holy hostility against our sin on the cross so that by taking the hostility our sins deserved, Jesus could extinguish the fires of hostility that burned between us. How did he do that? Look at verse 15. First, he had to abolish something. He had to make of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations. Now, let's chew on that a little bit. The law of Moses was given as a gift to keep Israel, God's people, protected from the pagan nations around them to keep them from being corrupted by their evil practices. And God's plan, God's purpose was that Israel would become a holy nation living such beautiful lives of holiness that they'd be a light to the nations and that the nations would see the light of Israel and they'd be drawn to the God of Israel through their behavior. That was God's plan in giving them the gift of the law. But what happened was that the Jews took this law which was a gift, and they turned it into a source of superiority and hostility toward the nations. The very thing that was supposed to be a gift that would draw the nations in, the people of God instead added all kinds of hostile regulations to that law that were designed to keep people out, to keep people at a distance from them. And that good gift became a basis of hate. And what Jesus did on the cross is he tore down that wall 
by fulfilling the law, which no one else had done. And in tearing down that wall and removing the Mosaic law that kept Israel, kept God's people separate from the nations, Jesus inaugurated a new covenant. And in that new covenant, all people, Jews, Gentiles, no matter what your ethnic background, we all come to God at the same level. We all come to him as desperately needy sinners. None of us is superior to anyone else. We all face our own sin and brokenness at the foot of the cross. I was hearing this week about the great American baseball player, Kurt Flood, who was an African-American, played for the Cardinals. And when Kurt Flood was playing on a minor league team, his team had a doubleheader. And in between the two games, the whole team came into the locker room. They're all sweaty and dirty. They all took off their uniforms and threw them into a pile to be laundered before the second game began. And all the team members did this. They all stripped off their clothes, threw them in the pile. Kurt did the same thing. And after the pile was big, the manager came and he took this big pole, this stick with a hook at the end of it. And he fished through that pile of dirty clothes and he found Kurt Flood's uniform. And he pulled it out from that pile. And he set it aside. He took all the other team players' uniforms and brought it to the laundry right there so theirs could be cleaned and they could be ready to play the second game. And he sent Kurt Flood's dirty laundry to a colored laundromat that was 20 minutes away. And because of that, through the first half of the second game, Kurt Flood had to sit naked in the laundry room, in the locker room. And when he finally came out to the game on the field, he came to the boos and hisses of the crowd and the curses of the crowd. He said, they called me everything but child of God. I remember, I wonder, how many Christians were in that crowd? How many Christians were in that locker room seeing that kind of abuse and behavior to an African-American teammate. What, what had they forgotten? They forgot that, that we all have brought our dirty laundry to the foot of the cross. All of us. We're all equally a mess. And Jesus has taken all that dirty laundry, all our sin, and he has broken down any walls that divided us, and we are clothed in his righteousness and his alone, none of us is superior to another. Why did Jesus do such a loving thing? The answer is in verse 16. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. The cross killed the hostility. The cross formed this one God body of reconciled sinners to God. Jesus achieved this reconciliation on the cross, and then he went on to announce this reconciliation after his resurrection. And that's what verse 17 is about. It's, it's echoing Isaiah 52, which speaks of how lovely on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who publish peace, 
who proclaim good news of happiness, and who say to Zion, your God reigns. That's what Jesus did after his resurrection. Verse 17, he came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away, that's to the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near. The Jews had the law and the tabernacle and and the ceremonies. They had all those things. They were near, but they were just as alienated from God and just as in need of Christ's salvation as the Gentiles. And so Jesus proclaimed the good news of peace. He said, Shalom. God's setting things right. He's bringing things together. He did that to those who were far. He did that to those who are near. And he's doing that today through us, his people. As we speak the gospel to our friends and neighbors, he's proclaiming peace through us to a world that can't find that peace on their own. And because of this peacemaking work of Jesus, look at the result in verse 18. Because of his peacemaking work, look at what we now enjoy. We enjoy a fully Trinitarian salvation. Verse 18. For through him, who's the him? Christ, God's Son. Through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We all come to God, the Father, through the Spirit in Christ on the same terms. We come through the same door. We all have equal access and welcome. So what does that mean for us right here and right now? How should that be affecting our lives in 2021 in this church? Well, one way it should affect us is it should give us hope. In Christ, in the church, there is hope for every conflict. I want you to take that to heart. No matter how badly you've been treated by another Christian, no no matter how much you've been hurt, Remember what Jesus has done for you on the cross. That can purge out that poison of bitterness and hostility. And that can prepare you to move closer to the one who has hurt you. I know that's not easy, and I know there's a lot of different things we got to work through, but what Jesus wants for us, if we all have access through him in one spirit to the Father, then we all have power available to us to live in peace with one another. And that's not just tolerating, not just putting up with each other. That's actually liking each other. That's like wanting to get close to one another. So what can you do to take a step towards someone that you've been at a distance from lately? How does Ephesians 2 call you to move toward someone, to pursue reconciliation? Is there a brother or sister in Christ that you can take a step toward today to embrace, to enjoy the reconciliation that's ours in Christ? Another way this speaks to us right here and right now is that Jesus is calling us to tear down our walls He has removed the dividing wall of hostility, but we can put up walls toward other people. Back in 1987, in the city of Berlin, Peter Robinson was a speechwriter for President Ronald Reagan. He was in that city 
preparing for the speech that the president was going to give. And the foreign policy experts and the, the diplomats, they were all warning Robinson, don't you dare say anything that could be construed as a bash against the Soviets. And by all means, do not mention the Berlin Wall. And Robinson sat for dinner with some from the city later that evening, and he was asking them, how have you just kind of gotten used to this wall that's dividing your city? And someone said, I could never get used to that wall. Because my sister lives on the other side of that wall, and I haven't seen her for 20 years. I can't get used to the wall. And the hostess said this, if Gorbachev was serious about peace, he would tear down this wall. And that's what moved Robinson to insert these words that would unknowingly become one of the most enduring lines of any presidential speech in history. After President Reagan said these words, Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. And the crowds were cheering uproariously, and then the, the, the cheering died down. Reagan said these words, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And the wall, the crowds went wild. And, and it wasn't long before we saw men and women on top of that wall with sledgehammers bringing that wall down. Well, Ephesians 2 should echo in the minds and hearts of Christians with much greater authority and power than President Reagan's speech. If we are passionate about what Jesus is passionate about, if we're serious about peace and reconciliation and unity, then we need to work at tearing down the walls that we put up to keep ourselves at a distance from other Christians. So I want to ask you, church, where have you been putting up walls against someone else, especially another believer in Jesus? Are you clinging to any aspect of your identity so tightly that it's having the effect of creating a distance? Maybe your nationality or your ethnicity. Is that becoming a wall that, that actually keeps you from wanting to get closer to believers from other races, from other backgrounds, or maybe keeps them from wanting to know you and to hear the good news of peace from you? Maybe it's your social status, your educational background. You can use that as a wall so that, that you don't really get to know people who maybe have less money or don't have the kind of education you have. Politics. Can we all agree that over the last five years, a lot of Christians have put up some walls toward one another because of politics? And I hope that as Christians, we, we all think alike on certain political issues. I hope we all agree abortion is evil. I hope we also agree racism is evil. And as Christians, we agree on the, on the politics of King Jesus, but we're in a real world where, where we find that sometimes the options that are available to us are, are hard to sort through, hard to discern. And, and, and believe it or not, whether you like it or not, not all Jesus-loving people end up making the same choice as you make when it comes to politics. And do you let that become a source of judgment and division and exclusion? Or do you actually say, I want to learn from my fellow believers? 
those who even think a little differently than I do, I want to pray with them and, and I want us to come together. Is there any part of your identity that's become more important to you than your identity in Christ is? And the last thing I want to do is put on the screen something our elders wrote as our goal, at one of our goals back in 2017. We said this, against the rising spirit of indifference, alienation, and hostility in our land, we will embrace the supremacy of God's love to take new steps personally and corporately toward racial and ethnic unity and diversity expressed visibly in our community and in our church. We've really been praying about that these last few years, and we've been studying about that, and we've been trying to pursue some relationships that will help us with that. And we understand no one church can include the full scope of the diversity and unity that there is in the body of Christ. And we can only speak one language or two in our worship services as we sign to the deaf community. But every church, every church can and must stretch. We must stretch and endeavor to include more of the beautiful diversity and unity that there is in the body of Christ. So as you look at that goal, ask yourself, is there some small step I can take to help our church toward the achievement of that goal? I mean, Jesus has already achieved this. He's already achieved racial reconciliation. The world and we agree that racism is evil, but we've got a solution We've got King Jesus, the peacemaker, in our midst. And and so what is a step we can take? What is a step you can take? How does this goal move you to pray? We've been encouraged by safe families. How many people have been involved in, in wanting to know more about this and participating in this? I've been filling out references for people from our church who want to do this. I think that's a ministry that's going to intersect beautifully with this goal. Another way you can express this is like we did last night when we're singing, Quan, Quan, what do we say? Quan grande es Dios. Sing that with all your might. Instead of just saying, how great is our God? Why are we singing in Spanish? No, sing, Quan grande es Dios. And Jesus es mi vida. Jesus is my life. Sing it with all your might. We're doing that because it's a foretaste of the new creation. When we're going to be gathered with brothers and sisters, Jesus has purchased by his blood from every tribe and language and nation. And we do that because it's a way of conditioning our own hearts to welcome more of the beautiful diversity that Jesus has accomplished through his death on the cross. Amen. So let's pray. For a moment, let's bow our hearts, our heads, our minds, and quiet ourselves before God. And I just want us to spend a few moments preparing for communion by speaking to the Lord about what He has spoken to us. Where are you in need of repentance? because of what you've heard from God today. Don't resist that repentance that cleanses our hearts and enables us to experience the beautiful joy 
of the reconciliation that we have with God and Christ and with one another. As God searches our hearts, are there any attitudes or any words, any prejudices, any actions, any indifference or apathy that you need the Lord to deal with in your heart today? God, please mold us more and more according to your passions and your desires. Thank you that the great work of your salvation includes people from every tribe and language and nation. Thank you that now in Christ Jesus, we who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, to you, Father. As we hold in our hands this precious bread and cup, we thank you that around the world today, there are believers in Africa, Australia, Asia, Europe, South America, Central America, Mexico and Canada and all over the United States who are holding this same bread, the same cup in their hands, confessing with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believing in our hearts that you, God, raised him from the dead. And we thank you that through that faith we are united in an eternal family that we have more in common with our brothers and sisters in Christ than we do with our next-door neighbor who doesn't know Jesus. There's a widow in Somalia who doesn't know where tomorrow's meal is going to come from, but she's feasting today on the body and bread of Jesus in communion, trusting in you as her Savior. She is our sister in Christ. She is closer to us as family than our best friend from high school who doesn't yet know Jesus. Help us to celebrate the reconciliation that we have with one another in your body as we remember the cost of that reconciliation, what Jesus paid in his body to make us one. We ask this in his name. Amen.